The word of our Lord from Paul's second New Testament epistle to the Corinthians. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life is working in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. Bless us as we hear from it. Change us. Challenge us. Cause us to be reflectors of the great glory and brilliant light of your gospel. And send us out into darkness. Empty us of ourselves and fill us with your love. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Everyone seems angry. That's no news to you. You've seen it. You've heard it. You've noticed it. In fact, folks make millions off of the vehemence of others. 
you can make a pretty good career out of anger. In fact, politicians live off of fear and frustration. Banks is grinning up here. (laughs) Everyone seems angry. If you could bottle anger up and sell it in a market, you could charge whatever you want because it seems like everyone just wants to be angry. Frustration and aggravation, despair, even rage. We see it all about us, all around us. We see it on the the TV. We see it in our neighborhoods. We hear it on the radio. We hear it even in the lyrics of pop music. Everyone is frustrated and aggravated. It's like we find joy in bitterness now. Joy in criticism. And not just criticism. Not constructive criticism. But in personalized, internalized anger. You know, anger has a way of clouding our judgment. It can convince us that we're only righteously indignant. I have no doubt, or at least very little doubt, that you saw the situation this week with the I use the term loosely, Pastor Joel Osteen in Texas. And all the frustration and aggravation and everyone suddenly becoming a a know-it-all and a figure-it-all-out type person from their computers and their Twitter accounts. and I mean, I, even, I, I was even watching a, a news program where I, you know, we always criticize news anchors and whatnot for interrupting one another. They ask a guest question, the guest gets half a statement out, and then they interrupt, and then they start arguing and talking over each other. The conversation that I heard about this man, Joel Osteen, was probably filled with the most interruptions I have ever seen in a segment on the news. Everyone is filled with aggravation and opinions. Now look, my beef with Joel Osteen's theology is singular. It can all be boiled down to one thing. He's a heretic. I'm no defender of Joel Osteen. If there ever was a snake oil salesman... He may not be him, but he'd be on the poster. (laughs) I do not defend him. I do not care for his theology. I think it is anathema to the ears and eyes of God. But we must remember 
the importance of marrying truth with knowledge. We can be, we can disagree with him on a number of things, but that does not give place for us to misrepresent facts or jump to conclusions that we had better yet hold off on. It seems like so few people are really concerned with answering the question, well, what are the facts about a matter these days? Do the facts even matter anymore? Or do we just care too much about our anger to even bother with the facts? You know, facts can be a bit inconvenient to us if they challenge our accepted anger. On social media this week, I even saw calls for the mayor of Houston to lose his job for not evacuating the city for rain. Now, you may agree with that, and I might even be willing to hear that out. But the fact is, I'm not the mayor of Houston. I'm not even there in Houston. This sort of anger and outrage and, and whatnot that that happens all around us it's not it's not limited to just things that are going on in the news it seems like folks are frustrated all the time there seems to be a felt need among our neighbors among our coworkers among our entertainers and if we're not careful among ourselves this felt need of being right and being angry about it. Want to know if your anger is righteous indignation? Ask yourself a simple question. Has my anger driven me to prayer? Seriously. Have I been praying for those with whom I'm angry? Have I been praying for wisdom myself? Lord, I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be misguided. I don't want to think that I know all of the answers or have all of the facts. Have I been praying for an opportunity to help? those with whom I disagree see more clearly? Or am I just happy to be angry? Am I self-righteous in my rightness? If your anger doesn't drive you to God, then my friends, your anger isn't of God. Ah, pastor, you're just trying to spiritualize things. You're just trying to take the high road, and we want to be angry. Who prays for those with whom they're angry? Well, Jesus did. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we can brush that aside and say, yeah, but he's Jesus. 
the incarnate Son of God. But the problem with that sort of thinking is that we hear those same words in the voice of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as he's being pummeled to death by stones. He looks up to heaven and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know the old saying, again, sorry, Banks. There are two things you don't want to see being made, sausage and a law. But what about what makes our anger? What's the source of unrighteous anger? Anger when it's not righteously derived. Anger when it's not harnessed in prayer. How it's made might disgust us. There are many motivations to anger. But we should beware of the one all-piercing source, which is pride and arrogance. We want to be right, and we want others to know that we are right. We see pride all around us. The type of self-absorption that leads to a, an unprecedented and unthinkable desire and longing and drive to be a celebrity. I was, uh, I, I was, I think I was listening to a um, results of a study just a few weeks ago. It was talking about how our culture has shifted so dramatically, and one of the ways that that it's patently patently obvious that our culture has shifted and that our values and desires and motivations in life have shifted is that among young people, there is now a a common response to the question of what do you want to be when you grow up, and that common response, which just a few years ago was unthinkable, was, I want to be a celebrity when I grow up. What, a musician, a singer, you want to be in a band, you want to be a football star, baseball star, what do you mean, what do you mean a celebrity? Oh, I don't know, I just want to be a celebrity. I think that underscores the fact that that we are perpetuating a culture where self is king. Where self and self-interest and self-realization rules all. And we see it in our anger. Our overwhelmingly concern 
our overwhelming concern for and preoccupation with ourselves often shows its face when we are red-faced with anger. But you know, catastrophe has a way of waking the world up to reality. And it doesn't have to even be a natural disaster type of catastrophe, but when things go bad, when things get messed up, we often find ourselves awaking to the reality of things. Things going bad reminds us that there are more important things in life than my own personal comfort. I alluded to it in my pastoral prayer, but to see on the news and to hear about the self-sacrificial work of the, the Cajun Navy, and I hear there's also now the Waco Navy, People who have nothing to gain. No self-interest in going and rescuing others. Simply the interest in others. Simply the interest in wanting to be a help. Simply the interest in caring about their neighbors. That's the sort of thing that sometimes we wake up to when things go bad, when catastrophe hits and the world wakes up to reality. We're reminded that there are more important things in life than my own personal wants and comforts and desires. My way of living, my way of rocking, my way of doing life. We're reminded that race doesn't matter. That humanity is to be valued for it is made in the image of God. When things go bad, when catastrophe wakes up the world to reality we are reminded that even in the midst of helplessness and hopelessness, there's always hope. As long as there's breath, there's hope. And when things go bad and catastrophe wakes up the world to reality, we are reminded that keeping perspective is a priceless necessity. Part of keeping perspective is learning to hear the voice of Jesus saying, chill out. You always feared that Jesus was a hippie, didn't you? Jesus tells us to chill out. Why should we chill out? Well, because 
we seem to forget that anger has a tendency to rob us of joy. Quick and constant anger makes joy hard to both attain and maintain. It makes joy difficult to get and impossible to keep. So chill out, Jesus tells us. Calm down. Simmer down. Okay, pastor, so why this passage from the epistles? Why 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Well, speaking of being awakened to reality, the Apostle Paul wakes us up to the reality. Paul, having been one who had suffered and knew suffering, was intimately aware of suffering. Knew it down into his bones. Is writing to a church that also knows a thing or two about suffering. And he wakes them up to the reality of the economy of grace. How God works. Like olives crushed to make oil, and like grapes crushed to make wine, God uses those things that are crushed for a blessing. And He invites us to surrender ourselves to give of ourselves to willingly allow ourselves to be crushed by the hate by the anger by the frustrations by the despair of the world so as to be a balm of grace Paul said in his letter to the Colossians that for the sake of the church, he was filling up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Wow. You remember the words of Jesus from the gospel reading this morning. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it falls to the ground, if it is broken apart, if it is pressed down into the dirt and is saturated with water to the point that it breaks and cracks, it will give life. In the midst of this series of sermons on the relationship between the church and culture, this call to return to the Lord and rebuild what has been devastated, we must keep perspective. Because as we engage in the so-called culture wars, we must never forget 
that as the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. For the church, our enemy is not the media, the other political party, the broken and confused, even the self-centered. That's not our enemy. Those with whom we disagree, though we vehemently do so, they are not our enemy. Our enemy is the enemy of our souls. Very unpopular terms. Sin. Death. Hell. Satan and his devils. And only in bearing our necks to the anger of the world can the world be offered the possibility of redemption. For self-surrender is always the way of atonement. Paul said we are compressed on every side but we are not crushed we feel in our bodies the weight of loneliness but we've not been abandoned so take the poison sure kill you but that's exactly what the Lord intends for you and for me to die to ourselves better that you and I should die to ourselves than for those we've confused as our enemies to die in the cold darkness of themselves You know, Jesus is all about laying down some ultimatums in the gospel. Jesus is always drawing lines in the sand, you know. Jesus said, unless you become as little children, you'll never enter the kingdom. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll miss the kingdom. Unless you repent, you will perish. Unless you are born again, being born of both water and spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. You can do nothing. Unless I wash your feet... You have no part in me. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no life in you. Unless you abandon all, take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. 
unless you forsake your families, even hating your own mother, father, sister, brother, wife, and children, even your very own life, you cannot be my disciple. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. And so let us declare our allegiance to our Lord, as did Thomas, who urged his fellow disciples, let us go with Jesus toward Jerusalem, so that we may there die with him also. Jesus invites us, come and die. Only then will you find life. And only then can the world be saved. Let's pray.